And Shakti is seen to be the complement of Shiva. Shiva is consciousness and Shakti is power, is energy. In the Kundalini tradition, the Shakti, the divine power, is seated at the base of the spine. It's coiled up like a serpent at the base of the spine and it has to rise through all the chakras until it meets Shiva, the pure consciousness, and then the total transformation of the human being takes place, you see. And that is the tantric tradition, how to awaken the Shakti, allow her to ascend so all our feminine characteristics are developed, and then it meets with Shiva, with the pure consciousness, and the transformation takes place. This is the practical discipline of tantric yoga, you see. In fact, the yoga itself is largely a product of Tantra, you see. It came in at this time and was developed into the various yoga systems. I mean, Hatha yoga is, is really Tantric because it, it works through the body primarily. Uh, but it has been, of course, linked with Vedanta, with the total tradition, has become a total way of spiritual life. But it has its roots in the Tantra. But Kundalini yoga is the specific Tantric yoga and that consists in recognizing the Shakti, this energy, and in transforming the energy. And now I think it's very important, you see, that we recognize now that the whole creation is a field of energies. And our body is a particular structure within this field of energies. And we have to learn how to relate ourselves, our physical being, with the whole field of energies in which we're living, you see. And that is why they say that Padmasana has such power. Unfortunately, I cannot do Padmasana. I came to it too late, I think. You have to become rather young. But if you sit in Padmasana, the belief is you put yourself in tune with all these energies. You see, you're now open to all the powers of nature around you. And actually, the Muladhara, that's the root chakra at the base of the spine is our point of communion with all the physical energies of the universe. And most people have lost touch with their muladhara, you see. They're all living from up here. See, from the age of three or four, very often, we are stuffed now with information, forming our minds and so on, and neglecting the body. Of course, sport and other things help to develop that aspect, but we don't go deep enough. And very few discover the muladhara, the source where we're linked with the whole physical energy of nature. We're linked with the stars, you see, with the planets, with the whole earth. We have this correspondence, and we have tried to become aware of that. And that is when the muladhara awakes. And then the next chakra, the swadhisthana, is really the sex chakra, the life chakra. And there we're related to all the life energies in plants, in animals, you see, the whole sex energy throughout the world. And this is one of the problems of Tantra, you see, because in most people, the sex energy is overdeveloped. Particularly in our culture, we've overdeveloped it. It's totally unbalanced. And so when you begin this yoga, you can get an uncontrolled sex energy. And that is a real problem for many people, even for many gurus. As you awaken the energy, it gets channelized into that chakra, and you can't control it. And that's why they say you should not do this tantric yoga without a guide, without a guru, because you awaken tremendous energy, tremendous power, and you may not be able to control it. And you see, it can lead to a, a psychotic state. You see, people awaken this tremendous energy, and they haven't learned the discipline of control, and it just, they freak out, you see, they, they're lost. 
So um, it, it is a very dangerous path. And yet I think we have to follow it. We cannot neglect sex anymore. You see, in our religious life, we were taught to say, when you, once you enter the convent, you've no more sex left. You've gone beyond it. But of course, you haven't. It's there. And either you suppress it, and it becomes negative, and causes all the problems which we experience, or you indulge it, and you live a sexual life, or you transform it. It's how to transform the sexual energy. Brother Amaldas, you know, in his latest book, Jesu Abba Consciousness. Jesu Abba is his... Uh, mantra, and he uses that to transform the consciousness, transform the energy. And he goes into this kundalini yoga and shows how the energy can be transformed. As I say, it is a difficult and a dangerous path, and yet I think we have to take it. You cannot leave sex aside any longer. It has to be transformed. So as the energy rises into the sex chakra, it has to be done under control. And that is why I think the Jesus prayer or some mantra, you see, you use your mantra to descend, and that mantra should be the control, so that as the energy rises, it doesn't simply break out, it is gathered in and centered, you see. And so you pass through the Swadhisthana to the Manipura, the emotional chakra, see, the navel, the, the belly, the hara, they call it in Japan. And that, again, is tremendously important. You see, as we rise up, we discover this whole emotional world. We're all living in this emotional world tied to our mothers. You see, most people have tremendous problems with their mothers, especially in the West, I think, where you have divorce and so many problems like that. The child loses that link with the mother and gets disorientated, and then terrible problems arise from that. But we should have this link with the mother, with the father, with family, with friends, extending right through the world, you see, the whole emotional complex. We're all involved in it. We're not isolated, you see. We're being affected emotionally by other people, by our past. You see, everybody knows today how your relation with your mother at birth and in the first two or three years, especially the first five years, is fundamental for your whole future, you see. That's your emotional character is determined at that period. Fortunately, and don't let us forget it, the spirit can transform an emotional complex. You're not, you're not fated by it at all. It can be resolved, but it's very difficult. It's a deep emotional complex which has been formed. So there is our Manipura, and we have to try to open that chakra to this power of the spirit. That is the thing, how to open it to the power of the spirit. We speak now, don't we, the healing of memories, how the spirit can descend and penetrate all these chakras and heal these complexes, see, heal the wounds which we've suffered from our childhood onwards. And then beyond the Manipura, you have the Anahata, the heart chakra. And that is a chakra of the affections, of the will. The emotions are fluctuating and changing. The will is more steady and stable. And many people find that the best chakra to concentrate on. It's a center between the head and the other part of the body, and we can center ourselves in the heart. And that is perhaps the best way. And the yoga of Patanjali speaks of meditating on Vishnu in the heart. And St. Teresa spoke of Jesus in the heart. And the whole devotion to the sacred heart is very significant in that way. So the heart chakra is, is a great center. In our meditation, we can focus on the heart. 
Then comes the throat chakra, and this is the chakra of speech, of song, of poetry, imagination, you see. It's where we're rising up towards the intelligence, and that's been very much neglected, you see. There's a tremendous place for music, for song, for poetry, for drama, for ritual, gesture. All these things come out of this chakra, you see. And in our liturgy, we do develop that to some extent. And I think it's very good the way music is developing in all these liturgies here in America and in India and elsewhere. And um, there's a great future in that, but tremendous much more to be done, you see, to develop music, develop poetry, develop painting. You see, the mandala is one of the great features of Tantra. I didn't mention the mantra is most important, perhaps. And um, that is the sound. I don't know whether you know Lama Govinda's Creative Meditation and Multidimensional Consciousness. It's one of the best books I know on Tibetan Buddhism and on the whole uh, philosophy, really, of Tantra. And he speaks there of the mantra as primordial archetypal sounds. Before speech arises and we articulate, there are these sounds, you see. Om is one of the great ones, but there are many others. And he says these are archetypal, primordial sounds which root us in the original human consciousness, you see. And so they have tremendous power, these, these words, these sounds. And that is one of the ways of tantric meditation, to use these sounds. And then the next one, as I said, is the yantra or the mandala, these pictures. And in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, they make tremendous use of visualization. You visualize the different Buddhas and you place yourself in relation to them. And there again, Lama Govinda has a marvelous chapter on the different Buddhas and the different forms of wisdom. And it brings out exactly what I was trying to say about the movement in the Godhead. He brings out marvelously how uh, there is a dynamism in the ultimate reality, you see. The Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, never denies the world. And on this level of merely dualistic thinking, of course, you've got to go beyond that. But when you get to unitive way, you discover how all this dynamism of creation is in the void, in the sunyata, you see. It's, it's not a static state, but a dynamic state. And so the whole movement of creation is present in the ultimate reality. He brings that out marvelously. And so they use, as I say, this visualization to center yourself, to relate yourself to all the different cosmic powers. And there again, perhaps, it's worth mentioning you know, in Hinduism, the function of a temple. You see, when a Hindu goes to the temple, it's not for congregational worship or anything like that. It's for a darshana of the Lord. And the idea is that the supreme reality is at the center of the temple, and you have to go round different shrines and courtyards of the temple to discover the center. So you start, you go through the gopuram, that is the gateway, and that is full of images of the gods and all the things you see, and you're just leaving the outer world to go into the inner world. And the first thing you do is to bathe in the tank. You wash yourself, you purify yourself, that's the purgative way. And then you enter the temple, and interestingly, the first thing you do is to break a coconut at the feet of Ganesh. Ganesh is the elephant god, and his function is to remove obstacles. I think originally he was the one who put obstacles in your way. 
and you had to propitiate him to take the obstacles away. But as so often happens, uh, he gets reversed, and he's the one who removes obstacles. So you break the coconut, and the, the, the symbolism of that is the coconut has this hard, rough shell, and inside is this sweet milk, you see. And the rough shell is your ego, the outer world, and you break your ego, your outer self, and within is the sweet nectar of divine life, you see. You're opening yourself to the divine. Then you go around the courtyards of the temple, visiting the different shrines, and these are all the cosmic powers. You see, the gods and goddesses are the cosmic powers, the old powers of creation. That is why there can be millions of them, because they're all the different powers of creation, all subject to the one supreme shakti, you see, who is manifesting through all these powers. So you go around the shrines, and you relate yourself to the cosmos. You see, your body and your soul, you're putting yourself in harmony with all these powers, these energies in the cosmos. And that is the illuminative way, you see, you're passing through all this. And then you come to the inner shrine, and there you have the lingam. And the lingam, of course, is really the male organ, and undoubtedly it stems from this Dravidian tantric tradition where sex is holy, you see. Sex is seen as the power of God in creation. And the lingam and the yoni, the male and the female organ, are depicted at the center of the temple, you see. And it's very deeply meaningful, you see. It's the source of life. You're coming to the source of life, and they're the symbols of it. But for the modern Hindu, the sexual element is very much diminished, and the lingam really stands for the formless Godhead. You go around the shrines, and God with form, many arms and legs, and so on. But when you come to the inner sanctuary, the lingam has no form. It's just a roughly carved stone, and that is God without form. So you've gone beyond form. You enter into the inner center of your own being, your psychic center, and there you encounter the Godhead itself beyond form. So you see, to visit a temple can be a tremendous a creative experience. It should be. Of course, for many, it's not that at all, but that is the deep meaning of it the mandala, visualization, all this ritual like that. You see, all that is part of this tantric development. And you see, the Hindu temple is part of this tantric development. The Vedic religion, there were no temples. It's quite a surprise to realize, you see. There, were no there was a Vedic sacrifice, an altar, and it was built in a courtyard of a house or a palace. And very, it was a symbolic altar, the center of the universe. And it was a far sacrifice. But this temple worship and the gods and goddesses came from the Dravidian tradition, you see. And that has now taken over all over India. You use all these methods of raising the energy, you see, through symbols, through mantras, through mandalas, through ritual. All these are methods of transforming the energy, you see. And our ritual of the mass, you see, should be, and is to some extent, transformation. Uh, Jung, you know, wrote an interesting little article once, the transformation symbolism of the mass. And the mass should, you see, have that power to transform. Our Roman liturgy has cut things away so much that it, it rather lost that power, but the Oriental liturgy still has it very strongly, I think. And that is what I feel we have to develop today, you see. We have to allow this liturgy to develop and become a, a tantric liturgy, a, a method of transforming the human person, you see, in the encounter with Christ. The energy rises through all these levels. I got to the throat chakra, and then it ascends to the anya chakra here. And that is the buddhi, that is the light of intelligence. 
and the Buddha is the enlightened one, you see. This is the enlightened point. And many concentrate on that point between the eyebrows. You can concentrate on the heart, or you can concentrate here. And um, that is the focus of intuitive wisdom. It's not rational knowledge. It's the focus of intuitive wisdom. And at that center, you have this intuitive awareness of God and of the, and of the world. So that um, that is the awakening of the pure intelligence. And then finally you come to the Sahasrara, the thousand-petal lotus at the crown of the head. And that's where we're open to the infinite, you see, and that is the crown of all. And the chakra, the energy has come through all these chakras. They're said to be like lotuses turned down. And as the energy comes up, they all turn up, you see. So your Muladhara, your Swadhisthana, your Manipura, your Nahata, your Vishuddha, then your Anya chakra all turned up and now the thousand little lotus, you see, flowers at the height of your being, and you're now open to the Holy Spirit. And I think for a Christian, uh, it's perhaps easier to reverse the process. We don't think of the Holy Spirit at the base of our spine normally. We think of it as a descending from above. I found this in Sri Aurobindo years ago, and I've always, in my prayer, I always have that sense of, waiting on the descent of the spirit, you see. You're trying to open your, all your being to the descent of the spirit. So the spirit descends upon the Sahasrara, and that would be the spiritual energies. And I would like to link that with the uncreated energies of the Orthodox tradition. You know, it's very interesting. They say that God himself is beyond everything, but God's action in the world through the Holy Spirit is through these uncreated energies. It's really God present, active in the soul, you see. And that is where the Holy Spirit acts in us, the uncreated energies that are awakened in us. And we are, as I said, in pure contemplation, it's the action of God in us, you see. So we're open now to the uncreated energies which come down from above and transform a Sahasrara. And then it descends to the Anya Chakra, and we get this illumination, reflecting on the Bible, the Gospel, on Christ, Church, we have this illumination, light comes to our mind. And that is a spiritual transformation, you see, coming down from above. And then it descends to the Vishuddha Chakra, and it awakens our imagination, our poetry, music, and we can have a, cre a creative poetry, you see, coming from that, and also painting, sculpture, all these things will come as the spirit gradually informs that chakra. And then the heart chakra, the chakra of love, obviously, a transformation takes place. The love becomes total spiritual love. And then only, you see, as it comes down through the higher chakras, it enters into the emotional. We begin to experience emotionally. And finally, into the sex chakra and the muladhara, the root chakra. And in that way, you see, a spiritual control is found so that the lower chakras don't break out on their own. You see, the danger is, I said, the sex chakra can become dominant and break out, and the emotional chakra, you see, for many people, and that's the danger of the charismatic movement, that their emotions take charge. But this would exactly apply to the charismatic movement, you see. It is opening yourself to the Holy Spirit and allowing that power to come and transform from above. So um, I would think that would be a Christian way of expressing it, but both are valid. We can either think of the Shakti rising from beneath and transforming the person or descending from above and transforming the person. 
And that's a point perhaps I should emphasize that in all this, it's always a question of polarities, opposites. And we always tend to choose one of the polarities and neglect the other. But always you've got to have what Nicholas of Cusa called the coincidentia oppositorum, the coincidence of the opposites. It's so difficult to be both masculine and feminine, you see, and to be subjective and objective, to unite the opposites together. But that is what we have to do, so that actually in prayer, the rising up to God, the Trinity beyond, is also the descending to the depths of your being and finding the Holy Spirit at the depth of nature and the whole creation, you see, so that, that two opposite movements which unite. So there we have the transformation of energy, you see, through various symbols. And now I'd like to relate this to the philosophy of Sri Aurobindo, who I find the most interesting modern Hindu philosopher and spiritual guide, in a sense. And he united Vedanta with Tantra and also introduced the idea of evolution. That was something new in Hinduism, of course, very like Teilhard de Chardin in the church. In fact, books have been written on Aurobindo and Teilhard de Chardin. And Aurobindo's view is this, you see, that God is Satchit Ananda, being knowledge bliss, and this being knowledge and bliss involves itself in matter. The matter of the universe is involved by Satchitananda. God, the Holy Spirit, we would say, is present in matter from the beginning. Spirit brooded over the chaos, you see. And the Holy Spirit is present in the matter. And matter evolves through this power of the spirit, of the Godhead, which at work in it, matter evolves into life. And then life develops, plant forms, animal forms, and so on, until you come to the human being. And at the human being, life emerges into consciousness. The same power of Satyadananda is at work as Sat and then as Chit, you see. And so our human consciousness develops, and we are now in the state of mental consciousness. And that is a transitional state. We're in mental consciousness, and we're moving to supermental consciousness. And the whole of our work in life, really, is a transformation of our present level of consciousness, which varies, of course, in different people. We're all at different levels, but we're all being called to go beyond the mental consciousness to the supermental. And that is the call today, you see. Most Christians and Catholics are living on the mental consciousness. God and grace is something beyond, and they seek it and so on. But they conduct their lives on the level of the rational, mental, scientific, analytical, the yang consciousness, you see. And the other consciousness, the deeper consciousness, the psychic consciousness, is hardly developed. The danger of this is that we have to pass through this psychic world. As you open yourself to these powers, these energies, they open to you the whole of this psychic world. And that, as I said, is both good and evil. There are angels and there are demons. So it's a difficult path. And that's why, as I say, this is a difficult way and, and needs a guide, really. And yet, we must be prepared for it. Because after all, in the Middle Ages, you see, all these angels and demons were not illusions at all. The fathers of the desert saw the devils around them all the time. And these are psychic forces, you see, which are there. And they have to be faced. And in Christ, we can overcome all the demonic forces, and we can cooperate with the angelic forces, and we can rise to union with him. So we have to pass through that psychic world, and then we come to the union with God himself. 
Now, what interests me in Aurobindo is this, that he said that the supermind is not only man rises to the supermind, but the supermind descends and raises mankind. This was a new vision for India, really. He believed that the supermind would descend on Aurobindo ashram, and it would be a new stage in evolution for humanity, passing from the mental consciousness to the supermental. And it was meant to radiate out from Aurobindo ashram. But it didn't happen, you see. Twice they waited for the descent of the supermind. Once in 1926, I think it was, and once again, in, I think, in the 1940s. And something happened. There was a sort of power was generated, but it wasn't what they expected. And they believed that when the supermind descended, it would transform the body. And Aurobindo and the mother were trying to transform their bodies. They thought they would not die. Now Rabindo died, they said he decided to go on ahead to assist the process from another world. And the mother stayed on. And she lived to be 95. But at last she also found she couldn't transform the cells of the body, you see. And they believed that this would be, as I say, a cosmic phenomenon, the new stage in evolution. This force, the supermind, would be released and mankind would be open to a new form of consciousness. Well, what I maintain, I've been having a long correspondence with one of the disciples of Aurobindo at Aurobindo Ashram, is that this happened at the resurrection. In the resurrection, the body of Jesus was transformed. The cells of his body were transformed. And that gross body became a psychic body, a subtle body, you see. And I think the, the, the appearances of Jesus in the resurrection were in a subtle body. You see, it appeared and disappeared, the doors were shut and it came in. It was a subtle body. But then he didn't remain in the subtle body. At the ascension, he passed from the subtle body to the spiritual body, which is beyond time and space and causality, beyond the whole creation, you see. So in Jesus, this transformation of matter into spiritual body was achieved. What Aurobindo and the mother were trying to do, Jesus had already done. This disciple of Aurobindo is very indignant that, that suggests it all be done before, so there's no need for Aurobindo to try to do it. But then uh, the next thing is, you see, that Jesus, through the resurrection, works, brings down the supermind, transforms matter, and he releases that power. And the descent of the Holy Spirit is the descent of the supermind on humanity. It becomes a cosmic power. As the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, that presence is now present in the world as a transforming power. And the church is the place where this transforming power of the Spirit is present to transform our nature, to transform our bodies and our souls. And when we celebrate the Assumption of Our Lady, we're saying that in her, this transformation has taken place, but it's going to take place in all of us. That power has been released in the universe, you see. But of course, it meets with resistance in the church, and gradually we've almost forgotten it, and the church rationalizes her theology, and we get stuck in canon law and so on, and the power of the Spirit almost disappears. But now it's being revived. You see, we're rediscovering this Shakti, this power of the Spirit to transform the body, to transform the soul, and to create in us this spiritual body, this final state of oneness with God in the body and the soul. We're not discarding body and soul, but transforming them in the spirit. So that, I think, is the vision of the future. So I think you can see how the Tantra really has a message for us as Christians and a message for the whole world. 
and one we all need very much to learn because I still find it difficult to make that change, to transform from the mind and the head and the, all the, the, that aspect of being the yang and to discover the yin, discover the feminine. And of course, it's women must lead the way to rediscover this way of tantra.